2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23, and we'll start in verse 13. says, Then three of the thirty chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam, while the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sufficiency, for the authority, for the, the joy, God, that your word brings to our heart. Thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, as it brings us to the feet of Jesus, the living word of God. Thank you that accounts like these in your word, God, remind us in this, the transformation of our heart, God, what it means to bring our desires before you. God, knowing that you care for us, God, we know that your desire is for us. God, to, to truly know you in the power of your word, the power of your promises, and to believe them with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And may we be brought further into that understanding. May we have a further desire, God, to trust you and to trust your word and your promises this morning by what you want to do. What you want to speak through us in your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Last time I was with you guys, we were at the start of camp. We had just completed two weeks of staff training, and the campers were coming uh, on that day. And now we are three weeks into camp, three of our elementary weeks with the little babies. And we still <laughs> covet your prayers just as much as we did in the beginning. It has been a hot Summer, you can ask Gabe and Wesley over there. They just experienced the brutality of our Texas sun mowing lawns every day. And uh, just serving the Lord and serving these kids has been a joy. And God has been so faithful to bring many kids just into a saving knowledge of Christ every week that we have asked if there have been any who have come to know Christ this week. I mean, at least probably 30 to 40 have stood up and come to the front. We've just been able to pray for them. I don't know their hearts. God does, and I trust him with the consequences of his word. However many in that group have truly come to know Christ, he knows that, and I'm just, I'm just humbled um, by that knowledge that he has of, of the heart of man and just the desire that these campers have had to, to profess faith in Christ. And who knows from these years, if we never see them again, what God does in the rest of their life and what God will do through them in the changing of generations and the changing of the times. It's, it's only what he knows and only for his desire and really for his glory. So we're just humbled by that. And we ask for your prayers again for this week. It's our last week of elementary. 
week with the 8 through 12-year-olds, and then as we get into the older weeks of camp and the days to come. I ask for your prayers, knowing how to balance, you know, just being with these campers, loving them, pouring into them, as well as our staff, and then coming home. And I have three babies of my own, plus my biggest baby, my wife, right, to love her well and to cherish her and to know how to spend that time well. And Anyway, I would just appreciate that as, as, uh, as we come to mind. This summer, I have just uh, seemingly cannot get past First and Second Samuel, and it's just been something that God has put on my heart, and I just, I teach it, and I love it, and that's in the fall, and for this summer, I just keep coming back to it. Uh, and this passage in particular as I was asking the Lord what to share with you guys, it's something that I, if I have time in my classes, I try to touch on for like 15 minutes. But it's, it's one of my favorite passages in Samuel, though there are, there are many. I, the students probably like, yeah, you say that for every passage you, you start class with. It's my favorite. But this one has really just been a, a blessing to me because I didn't understand it for a long time. And it wasn't until I began just to really look at it and ask the Lord, what, what's going on here? Uh, with David's actions that, that God just began to peel back kind of the, the, the veil of his word and kind of the, my own insufficiency of understanding. And I'm just beginning to glean a little bit more year after year in, uh, in how awesome this, this passage is. Uh, but this takes place in, in what I call kind of the appendix of Samuel, uh, starting after, really in like chapter 21 through the end of 2 Samuel. It's kind of these bitten pieces that the author includes, and there's kind of no rhyme or reason of, of how they're included, but it's like these things took place in the midst of this time, and they're so good to leave. We, we can't leave them out, so we want to just put them in, and, and here they are. And so they're kind of thrown in there a little bit kind of randomly, but I'm thankful that, that not only Samuel records them, but the Chronicles records them too. And this passage that our scripture reading was in actually takes place kind of on a linear timeline back in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And 2 Samuel chapter 5 is one of the the apexes of uh, the books of Samuel. It's finally, after 10 years of waiting, David is crowned king. And this is how it reads... In 2 Samuel 5 and verse 1, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over them. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David First time we see that phrase used. Not just David, not just son of Jesse, King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed David king over Israel. This is the part in the Bible school year where I subtly, maybe not so subtly, have uh, hidden two cascarones in the pulpit up there, and I begin to grab them out of my hand, you know, into my hands, and right when I read, and they made him king, pop! And I throw the Cascaronis in kind of a fun, emphatic way. That This is the moment that we've been waiting for for so long in Samuel. He was anointed king in 1 Samuel, but it's not 10 plus years until we finally get kind of the revelation, the manifestation of what God had promised to him years ago. And here it is finally 
culminated. And there's a lot of great things that happen uh, right after that, what he does with you know, getting Jerusalem as the capital. But one thing that comes up in this kind of victory and in the middle of this celebration and while the good times are, are rolling, as the people begin to disperse back into their tribes, the Philistines come back around. The pesky Philistines. And uh, it's in chapter 5, in verse 17. And it's kind of this, again, what seems to be random, not random, not coincidentally, here, moment with this war with the Philistines. And I'm really not going to read anything of it, but it starts there in verse 17, and, and it ends in verse 25. But why? Why does that happen? Right in the middle of the celebration, right in the middle of the good times, why do the Philistines have to come back in? And if you read 1 and 2 Samuel, almost every time the Philistines kind of pop their head up and decide, you know what, I think it's a good idea to invade again. Even though this has never really worked well, I think it's time that we do this again. It always seems to be a time where God is using them to test the authority of Israel. The first king of Israel, Saul, when he is king, his first moment, or one of his first battles, is with the Philistines. And in chapter 13, when the Philistines assemble their army and they come, he's looking around waiting for Samuel to come and make the sacrifice, and Samuel doesn't come, seemingly in his time. And so Saul decides, time to take matters in my own hands. I need to make the sacrifice. And in the entrusting in his flesh, in the wisdom of the flesh, it is foolishness. He makes the sacrifice, and then as soon as it's done, Samuel appears. And he says, what have you done? Right, there's that opportunity. God allows the Philistines to invade to trust. What do we test the heart of our trust? Who are we trusting in? And the first king of Israel fails that test badly with the Philistines. But what about David? He has just become king. All the power, all the position, all the prominence of leading, not just as the chief of the armies, but I mean, you're chief of the armies, you're chief of the political part. You know, he's just made the new capital in Jerusalem. Who or what will this new king trust in? And so you get the Philistines that come in. And in verse 19, David inquired of the Lord. Verse 20, David defeated them there. And then they come back again. Verse 22, and David in verse 23, inquired of the Lord. God gives him a new command how to defeat them. And David did, verse 25, David did so just as the Lord commanded him and struck down Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. First test, and it's a huge success. Who he decided to trust in even as king, with the position, with the power, with the crown, is not himself, not as the first king. He seemingly has learned from the first king and his mistakes and begins to inquire of the Lord. And he does it twice. The Lord really, I think, kind of in that passage, will you trust in a formula? You know, the first way I did it? And then he inquires of the Lord again. And now it's a completely different kind. You know, the second time, he has to lay in wait, lay in ambush. Them. And David doesn't question it. He doesn't doubt it. He doesn't begin to act in his own flesh. Oh, I've done this before. I know how this works. He trusts in the Lord, and the Lord gives him the great victory again. Things seem to be going really good in the beginning of his 
time, and then they go really bad, right, with that war. What's the point of the Philistines besides the test? I think most importantly, why God allows this hard time or war to come right in the middle of this celebration is to encourage us that man does not live by good experiences alone, but through the power and the presence of God. There's a lot of possibilities with that. It could be to break us from our passivity. It could be to remind us of who we're you know, you know, trusting in, in the midst of temptation. But I appreciated what one author said, F.B. Meyer. He said this from this account, In the hour of most radiant triumphs, you must remember him who has accounted you fit to be his steward. You must understand that your place and power are yours only as his gift and as a trustee of his glory. So be not surprised then if he makes your throne tremble now and again that you may remember that it rests on the determination of his will and the forthputting of his might. Even though David is king, I appreciate the word that F.B. Meyer uses there, a steward. A steward. One that holds no power in and of himself, but represents the one who has put him there. A steward. A caretaker of the garden or of the blessing that God has given to us. And God will make that throne as we are stewarding his blessing and stewarding in this world. He will make that throne shake every now and again to remind us it was him who has put us there and it is him who will surely bring it to pass. Faithful is he who calls you and it is he who will bring it to pass. First Thessalonians reminds us. A similar passage in the New Testament comes up when I think of Jesus. Did this ever happen of Jesus? And there's this beautiful anointing in Matthew chapter 4 at his baptism. There's the blessing of the Father that comes down out of heaven in the symbol of the dove coming and resting on him. And then the proclamation, the thundering of the Father's word. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You don't get that kind of speaking, that kind of authority, that kind of blessing, really from Genesis, from Genesis until Matthew, do we see those words spoken audibly by the Father. And directly after that blessing, directly after that anointing, 40 days to be exact, he is tested by the temptations of the devil. And the first thing that Jesus says in the midst of those temptations, in the midst of that testing, I think it's the real kicker. It's what really sets the stage for the rest of them. And he says, man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the Father. My position, my power, my blessing. Even Jesus says, is not mine innately, but it is from the Father. And the Gospel of John fills that in multiple times. Everything I do, everything I say, I have seen from my Father, I have heard from my Father. It is not from my strength alone. The law of two states every good thing that the Father does in this world will be tested, will be challenged by the enemy who hates all good things. Be not 
surprised. I appreciate what Romans 5 says. I'll flip there in the very beginning. And there's a word that comes up twice, and it's this word, this word exult. And Paul uses it first, speaking of the exaltation that we have in the grace of God in which we stand positionally. This beautiful grace, this beautiful position that we have been adopted into that God in his grace has given to us and we stand in the beauty of God's presence and we exalt, not in what we've done, but in the grace of God in which he has placed us there. But then it goes on to say this word exalt. What else do we exalt in? And verse 3 says, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Positionally, identity, we stand and we exalt in the grace of God. But how do we grow in understanding, in feeding, really, in being nourished in that grace in which we stand? God says, God's word says, it's through tribulation. It's through the hardships. It's through the challenges. It's through the testings of our faith, which God is using to mature the knowledge, our knowledge. This is for us. Our knowledge of the grace in which we stand. God sees it, but do we know it? Have we experienced it? Have we tasted and seen that God is good? That his perseverance is greater than our own? His character is greater than we could ever muster? That his hope goes beyond any physical temptation and trial? Do we know the love of God that's been poured out? David inquired of the Lord, and he saw, he tasted and saw the blessing of God in it. There's a word that comes up in this account. If you flip uh, a little bit later back into uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 21 and 22, in the, in the general context of our scripture reading, and it's this word influence. This word influence. And I think that of the people who are most influential in my life, the people I trust the most. I ask the students, you know, when you think of godly wisdom, someone who is wise and understanding, what is it that comes to mind when you think of those people? And almost every year, it's someone who has seen, they have tasted, they have walked through the difficulties of life, and they know what is true. The wisdom that is from above Right, carries with it an influence that is greater than I think we could possibly really imagine here. Right, David was a man of influence as he was influenced by the character, the nature, and the presence of his father. Right? In that relationship vertically with the father, there was simultaneously happening a direct cause and effect the effect there that was really radiating from him into what we know, or what we know in Scripture called, his 30 mighty men. 
Now, if you back up and rewind, these 30 mighty men were not just inherently, they weren't 30 of his best friends from childhood. They were actually people that came and met him when he was on the run in the fortress, or the stronghold, Scripture calls it, the cave of Adullam, a little bit outside of Bethlehem, a little bit to the east of Bethlehem. And these were people who Scripture calls debtors, distressed, and discontented men. These were the people that assembled to David when he first was on the run from Saul. And we don't hear much about them from that point on. We know that they follow with him, that they, they go with him, and, and they're there in 2 Samuel when he's crowned. They're there with him in the victories. Uriah's one of them who's just a faithful and good man and then later killed in a sense by David's hand. But we get a little bit more of a picture of David's influence of these men who were once debtors, distressed, and discontented men in chapter 21 and in 23. Not really to read much of them, but in verse 15 through 17, it talks about a couple guys and their battles with the Philistines. And then in chapter 23, starting in verse 8, you have the three. These were kind of the, the three top of the 30 mighty men. And these guys, it talks about what they did almost always in the context of, of Philistines. Right? The first one, Josheb, slayed 800 men at one time. After him, you have Eliezer, the son of Dodo, my favorite of, all, of the three. One of the mighty men defied the Philistines gathering there at battle with the, with, and the men of Israel had withdrawn. So everyone withdrew from him and there he stands. Verse 10, he arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the Lord and the, um, clung to the, his sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. He was fighting so hard that he literally could not pry his hand off of the sword. It had clung to it. It had become like one with it so much. Then you have Shammah, right? And the same thing, fighting for this plot of ground, which everyone else had deserted. He stays, strikes the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Twice out of those three men, the same phrase ends after they did what they did. And the Lord brought about the victory, a great victory that day. How did that happen? How did these men go from debtors, distressed, and discontented men, men on the run in exile who had no future, no hope, to what we call later in the end of this section, David's mighty men, who God uses to accomplish great victories. It's through the inspiration of David. The only common denominator there is David, who they assembled around. David, who in the midst of his flight, in the midst of his persecution, was seeking the Lord, who was crying out to the Lord, who made mistakes, but who also walked by faith. And his desire, his pursuit of the Lord caused these men to change into mighty men. Not just that they were incredible fighters, not that they were you know, pre-Navy SEAL kind of combatants, but that these men stood in the faith of David. They, were, they heard his word. They followed, most importantly, his example. 
Example is one of the most powerful forms of communication. Right? I can tell the summer staff, you should do this. This would be right to do. But one of the most powerful forms of communication that I learned at Bible school when I was a counselor was to see the one who was communicating it doing it themselves. Right? A dictator can use words right, and move people by simple words. But a true leader, one that is highlighted in Jesus, stood up after supper, took the towel that he was girded with, and began to wash the disciples' feet and said, as I have done this to you, I have done this by example, that you should do to others. The love of God, the new commandment, that you love one another through sacrifice and service is by example. David had his own fight with Goliath, not just Goliath himself, but also, as I mentioned last time, right, Saul, the Goliath of Saul, and constantly, right, the battle of an enemy that he could not take the life of. Rather, it was an enemy, it was a problem that he could not defeat, but victory came through submission. The victory of Saul came by laying it down at the feet of God, saying, you rise up and you take down, I wait on you. And now, 15 years later, there are scores of men who are defeating their own Goliaths. Some literally, some literally defeating Goliath's brother, some defeating Goliath's descendants, right? some defeating giants just like Goliath. Scores of men, each animated by the example of David's trust in the Lord. Do we realize that each of our lives carry influence. Influence does not come by position. Influence does not come by title. It doesn't come by a placard on your desk or on your door. Influence is something we all have. We all influence others. But the question is, to what end? What is the end of our influence? Where are we bringing them to? It's amazing to see the disciples, 12 men, as Scripture says in Acts, uneducated and untrained. These are men not of natural influence. <laughs> These are men that you would very quickly dismiss. And very quickly, not only are they not dismissed, but they're recognized as having been with Jesus. By the influence of the one, Hebrews says it was these 12 that began to turn the world upside down. Not of their natural ability, but because of who they were influenced by. And the life of faith they lived thereafter influenced where we stand today. Do you realize that? We're here today because of the influence of 12 men who trusted in the one, Jesus to illustrate this a little bit differently, July 1st, 1885, a man named Edward Kimball felt the tugging of the spirit to share his faith with a young shoe salesman that he knew. He was at first kind of facilitated in between two opinions on doing it, unsure if he should talk to the man, but he finally mustered up courage and went into the shoe, the shoe store. There, Kimball found the salesman in the back room stocking shoes and began to share his faith with him. And as a result, the young shoe salesman prayed and received Christ that day. The shoe salesman's name was Dwight L. Moody. 
and he, who became one of the greatest evangelists we know of his generation. But the story doesn't stop there. Several years later, a pastor by the well-known author and one I already mentioned, F.B. Meyer, heard Moody preach. Meyer was so deeply stirred by Moody's preaching that he himself embarked on a far-reaching evangelistic ministry. And one of those ministries, he was teaching at a college to a student whose name was William Chapman, accepted Christ and as a result of his presentation of the gospel. Chapman employed a baseball player to help him prepare and conduct an evangelical crusade. That baseball player became a powerful evangelist himself by the name of Billy Sunday. In 1924, a group of businessmen invited Billy Sunday to hold a campaign in Charlotte, North Carolina, which resulted in many people coming to Christ. Out of that revival, a group of men formed a prayer group to pray for the world, and they prayed for Charlotte to have another revival. God sent a man named Mordecai Ham through that prayer ministry, and Ham went to Charlotte in 1934, held a crusade. It went well, did not have many converts, though. But on the last night of his crusade, under the big tent, a tall, lanky young man walked up to the aisle to receive Christ. His name was Billy Graham. I don't know if any of you guys were saved through Billy Graham crusades, but I have talked to a number of people who have said, my mother, my father, I myself, through the crusades that Billy Graham presented, came to know Christ as my Savior. It's amazing to trace it back. When God allows us to trace sometimes those images back, we don't often get this. All the way back, if that was you, July 1st, 1885. And it goes back even further, right? But the string of events that can happen from one person's obedience results and is the catalyst for a great movement by God. It starts with one. It always has. Influence is powerful. Influence is something we all have. Again, the question is to what end is that influence generating in others? It can be for good as we walk by the Spirit, but it can be equally as powerful at any moment if we choose to walk by the flesh. And we see that in 2 Samuel chapter 23, and verse 15. Back to our scripture reading. This is the passage I call... The wishing well, David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. A little bit of what we said there, the cave of Adullam was about a little bit east of Bethlehem. This is again where the Philistines had, had come and the Philistines are in Bethlehem. And so they're kind of in between Jerusalem, the capital, and the cave of Adullam there. And David, in this cave, not far from Bethlehem itself, begins to think of a memory of a day long gone by when he was just a boy, a simple life then, relatively unknown to the world, actually pretty much completely unknown to the world, Right? We didn't know him. No one else knew him. A shepherd. A thankless and lonely job. Now, fast forward, he's king over all of Israel. God's anointed people and blessing to this world. And he recalls home. Bethlehem. Home. It's a word 
for most of us that I hope strikes good adjectives. Things like security, things like peace, comfort, rest, relief. For some of us, home is, is a word of our past that, you know, had conflict or had animosity. It wasn't peaceful there. But if anything, we know now that's something that we long for. Craving to have a home that is restful, that is peaceful, that the aroma of Christ is in. And on one sultry afternoon, home looms large in David's mind. But specifically, the water that is at Bethlehem, beside the gate. What is this water? Is this like mineral water? Is this Fiji water that was somehow transplanted into Bethlehem? What's up with this water? Like, what's so good about this water? And I don't think it's necessarily anything, actually, about the water, that it was Gatorade-infused water or anything like that. Right? But it was a longing, it was a craving for a desire or a wish to be fulfilled of the past. I can relate, while living in Columbia, South Carolina, more weekends than not, I woke up with a craving. I'm sure Keaton and Ryan could all attest. A craving for breakfast tacos. A craving that would go unsatisfied. Breakfast tacos don't get past Texas, pretty much. They stop very short to Taco Bell burrito wrap, and that just does not quite hit like Mary's or Los Haros. Back then, Chick-fil-A wasn't even serving breakfast burritos yet. I would think, what I would give, or even worse, I would think of La Fonda on Main, Queso Torriado there. What I would give, the desire to have something that I was raised on, pretty much, that maybe who I, who I was, it would literally make my head start spinning there. So distracting. I mean, so all-encompassing, it, it's hard to move on, and everything else loses its luster, Right? Everything else is far, far different. This is the danger of our wishing wells. We each have wishing wells, each like David. And in the hot parts of the day in camp, we wish for the cool weather of Manitoba or of Wisconsin or Alaska, whoever you're from. Right? We wish that maybe we didn't have this present problem. It wasn't always like this in my life. I wish it was, I was back to when it was easier. Hindsight always does that, right? Hindsight always makes things a little bit more golden than what it actually was back then. And we always look back and we think, man, I wish it was similar to that right now. One writer says this about anxiety. When we are preoccupied with getting, fill in the blank, we miss what God is currently giving. We are so preoccupied with getting this thing, this temporal, physical thing, that we completely miss what God is giving. God is always in his provision, giving. He is always giving according to our need, Philippians 4.19. God is always supplying for our need in the riches of Christ Jesus. But anxiety nullifies that. It kills our mind to 
to see what God is giving, and it just focuses and zeroes in on what I can get, what I deserve in this moment, what I should have. And if I just have this, whatever that is in our life, life would be a little bit easier. Life would get a little bit better. But that's not contentment. Contentment is not getting that. Actually, contentment is the absence of wanting. It's what David prays in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Because he is known greater than his wishes being fulfilled that life, true, satisfied, peaceful, joyful life is only found in the hands of the will of God. To, be, to, to know, to be in, to be walking in the will of God is far greater than any of my wanting. It's far greater than any of my wishes being satisfied. I wonder if David kind of says this in, almost under his breath, you know, almost involuntarily, like, oh man, if I could just get some water from Bethlehem. But what he did not take into account was influence in that moment. In that moment of his flesh, he did not take into account the influence that he had on these men. And these three guys heard that, and they, to paraphrase in my own message version, they said, say less. Say less. They looked at each other, and they left. The three mightiest of the men heard and responded to that call. They snuck out of the cave, unnoticed, down into the valley. They burst through the host of the Philistines. They, while one is drawing water, you, you, your imagination can really run wild with the story, right? How one is having to draw water while the other two are fighting off the Philistines, right? And then it's a cup of water, so it's pretty, pretty big. And now having to, without sloshing it out, get out of the battle with the Philistines, enough water to bring back to David. It's a really fun story. you you go way deeper with that. And he bring it to David, wearied from battle. We heard your desire, and here it is for you, David. They brought it to him, and it says in the middle of verse 16, nevertheless, he would not drink it. But even worse than that, not only would he not drink it, it says, and he took the cup in his hand, and poured it not into his mouth, but on the ground before him, before them. Dude, insult to injury, man. Like, what we did to get this water. And that's the point. David recognized what they did to satisfy his flesh. And he said, far be it from me that you would risk your life that you would lay down in a life, in, a, in your sense, in this sense, for my fleshly wishes, for my wishing well. That is not what God has prescribed. I think when David looks at this water, he does not see water. I think he sees blood. He sees the blood that did, was not spilt, but what could have been spilt there of these men from his fleshly moment of wishing and wanting 
I think the first thing he realizes is I am not worthy of men's life to be sacrificed for, that their life to be laid down for me because our lives are not reserved for one another, but they are reserved for the Lord. Romans 12, verse 1, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. The sacrifice of our life does not, it's not for my wife, it's not for my children. There's a greater one in whom I serve with my body, and that is my Father in heaven. And from the sacrifice unto him, he might call me then to lay down my life for her and him or them. But we cannot miss the first and foremost. We cannot miss who is preeminent. And that is the Father alone. I think that's the first thing David realizes. I am not worthy of the potential sacrificial life that these men risked for me. But second, and I think really what struck me the most here, is to partake of the cup, to drink the water, would have been to indulge in the desires of his flesh. And that, yes, would satisfy for a moment. But for how long? For how long? He would be thirsty again. Then what? We do this again? We risk our lives again? Another raid? Another potential of destruction of good, mighty men for his flesh? For his desires? Rather, what David does in pouring out the water is very direct and it's very beautiful. He says, my desires, there's only one person in whom is worthy of my desires to be poured out before, and that is God and God alone. He says, he takes the water, did not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. He doesn't just pour it out. He pours it out to the Lord that my desires must be satisfied by him and him alone. He is the only one who is worthy of hearing, responding to my wishes, my desires in a way that doesn't kill me and in a way that doesn't influence others to be killed, but in a way that influences me and therefore others to do well. My wishes have to be poured out before him. First Peter reminds us to cast our cares, to cast our anxieties, we can cast our desires at the feet of Jesus. And Peter reminds us in chapter 5, knowing that he cares for us. And knowing that he cares for us, we know that he hears us. We know that he sees us. And we know that he is actively working all things together for good in a way that satisfies his glory to be known through us. And in doing so, knowing that we stand in the will of God, unshaken, unmoved, fulfilled, and satisfied. There is much danger in wishing. Not only does it rob us of contentment, but it influences others, not toward life, but toward death. These might be the desires of our heart that we long for again. Oh, to be young again. Oh, to have, quote-unquote, freedom again. The choice to do what I want when I want to do it. Oh, to not have such responsibility again. Oh, to not have curfew again. 
Patrick, 28. He's lived lots of life on his own. And yet, he's back at camp, under curfews, under our authority again. Oh, if I could, not that he stole this from me at all. Oh, to have what I had when I was living on my own, right? That can be a very kind of righteous, seemingly, desire and wish. And it does not satisfy the need. One of our staff gave a devotion this past week that just really struck me. She said a, a quote by Jim Elliott, let not our longing slay the appetite of our living. And how often do we? How often is our living slayed because of our own fleshly wishes and the chasing and the pursuit? If I just had this in this moment, I'd be happy. And yet we never find that joy. We never find that happiness in any physical thing. This is something that I'm reminding myself of in camp. This is something I'm reminding the, the camp staff as well. Joy, peace, and life does not come from this, whatever this might be, but it is knowing this is exactly where God has you, playing this game in this moment, in this 107 degree heat, you think God knows that? Of course he knows that. You think God's going to supply for it? He already has. It's knowing it. It's tasting it. It's believing it. It's standing in it and proclaiming, this is the best possible place for me to be because God has brought me here, because God has led it. And if God is leading it, if God has started the good work, then it's his job. It's up to him to complete it. And there is no greater place to be than in the hands and the will of God. I'll conclude with this thought from A.W. Tozer, The Pursuit of God. He says, There is an evil habit of seeking God and. So God and AC. God and food. God and, right, you fill in the blank with whatever that wish is. There's an evil habit of seeking God and that effectively prevents us from finding God in full revelation. If we omit the and, we shall soon find God. And in him, we shall find that for which we have all of our lives been secretly longing. I love that. If we can just remember to drop the and and to remember that it is in Christ, in Christ alone, that my hope is found. And I lay my desire at his feet. I lay my longings at his feet. I lay my dreams at his feet. And I pour them out to the Lord because he is the only one worthy of them. Then I will know the joy of God's presence. I will know the will of God that which is good, perfect, and acceptable in its time. David demonstrates that beautifully, rather bluntly, but rather beautifully as well. May we pour our hearts to the only one who is worthy of your heart, all of our desires, all of our wishes, before him who cares for you. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for your promises and your word that are rich, that are true, that you will supply all that you have called us into. You are aware of where we are. God, you are intimately acquainted with all of our ways. It is you who have formed us in our mother's womb. God, in your knowledge of us, you have not forsaken us. In your knowledge of us, you are actively supplying for all of our needs. What we have now, God, we pray that we would not long for because we don't need them now. What we have now is what we need. And the greatest gift that you've given to us is the joy of your presence, the light of salvation, the hope of Christ. And I pray in our tribulations, in our trials, in those moments of anxiety and wishing, God, that you would stop us short, that we would not rob ourselves of the contentment and the joy that is ours in Christ. And God, that we would pour our cup out before you. And as Hannah did, leave those requests at your feet, knowing that you hear, you care, and you will work in your time for your desire for our good. Thank you for such beautiful promises, God. Thank you for such joy that we can receive. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.